Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of New Books Network. My name is Dr. Lee Pierce, she, they pronouns. I am hostess with the mostess of the channels in language and media and communications. And I am thrilled today to welcome Dr. Moya Bailey to the show with her latest and greatest book, Misogynoir Transformed Black Women's Digital Resistance from New York University Press 2021 where racism and sexism meet an understanding of anti-Black misogyny. So when Moya Bailey first coined the term misogynoir back in 2008, she defined it as the ways that anti-Black and misogynistic representation shape broader ideas about Black women, particularly in visual culture and digital spaces. Back then, she had no idea that the term would go viral, touching a cultural nerve and quickly entering the lexicon. And now it's shown up everywhere from uh, Comedy Central's The Daily Show to CNN's Cuomo Primetime. In this latest book, Misogynoir Transformed, Bailey delves into her groundbreaking concept, highlighting Black women's digital resistance at a time when Black women are depicted as more ugly, deficient, hypersexual, and unhealthy than their non-Black counterparts. The book explores how Black women have bravely used social media platforms to confront misogynoir in a number of courageous and, most importantly, effective ways. Focusing on queer and trans Black women, Bailey shows us the importance of carving out digital spaces where communities are built around queer Black web shows and hashtags like Girls Like Us. This is an absolutely amazing book in depth and breadth. Uh, You're sure to recognize several popular examples and some maybe you haven't heard of and get a tremendous lexicon for expanding the way that we think of women, black women, and uh, what counts as health in different cultures that we're not used to. So with that said, I'm going to welcome Dr. Bailey to New Books Network. And uh, Moya, if it's all right, would you tell us more about what you're up to right now? I know you're um, a visiting professor at MLK and MLK visiting professor at MIT, excuse me. And this book is hot off the press in 2021. So yeah, just let us let the audience know who you are, what you're up to, and tell us more about this idea of misogynoir that you created and has absolutely exploded across, you know, all kinds of platforms over the last 10 years. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here to talk about the book. I am thrilled and also, you know, horrified <laughs> every time misogynoir is used. You know, it's it's one thing to have a word that people find useful, but also it's describing such a horrible mm. concept and idea that it it's both like a a feeling of uh you know yes please use this word and find it helpful for the uh, reasons that you, you you know you need to use it and then also oh my god I can't believe there's another example of needing to talk about misogynoir. So it it's a gift and a curse in a lot of ways. But I would say that one thing that is exciting me now is the move of the word into more popular spaces. So um, definitely interested in folks learning more about the book and also misogynoir as a term that people are using in popular culture spaces now too. Um, You mentioned The Daily Show. I just was informed that in the last two weeks, it was on an episode of Charmed, the Charmed reboot. So I really appreciate that it's taken up space in in popular culture. 
of some of the places where massage noir, where I saw massage noir occurring. So I'm hopeful that that creates an opportunity for people to learn more about the term and then start to address it and deal with some of the negative ways that Black women are represented in popular spaces. And so in this book, you're, you're taking misogynoir, which, if I'm understanding you correctly, was a term that was used to describe the intersection of anti-Black racism and anti-Black misogyny, particularly uh, in U.S. visual and digital culture. So it's where those two things sort of meet for to double down on oppression. Is that a good summary or do you have a better way of saying that? No, I think you said it absolutely perfectly. I'm really trying to think through what happens when these forces combine because it isn't just an additive moment of, you know, anti-Black misogyny or anti-Black racism plus misogyny or just uh, thinking about those two things as coming together, that there's something, I've described it as sickly synergistic, that there's something that becomes more than uh, the sum of its parts that informs how Black women are treated in society as a result of misogynoir. And it's a term that I came to while working on a dissertation that actually wasn't looking at this contemporary moment at all. I was uh, doing my dissertation about this moment in the 1910s, uh, between 1910 and 1920, where medical school education was being reformed. And in that process, medical students, largely, almost exclusively white men, were thinking about who their patients were going to be and what patient populations they were going to be working with. And Black women emerge as this antithesis in medical textbooks and in uh, the yearbooks that were created at that time. So it was a bit striking to me to see, you know, these white male doctors looking down and looking, looking down in every possible way that you think of that, both the kind of figurative looking down and then the literal looking down at, on Black women as patients. And that these narratives and caricatures of Black women that were in these textbooks and yearbooks actually mirrored some of the things that I was seeing in popular culture at the time that I was working on this. So in 2008, 2006, so in that intervening, you know, almost 100 years, not a lot had changed in some of the visual representations of Black women. And that was a striking uh, fine for me as as a graduate student, and that's when I started to think about misogynoir as a concept that needed to be explored and expanded upon. And from there, just looking at all of the different ways that Black women were uniquely positioned in popular culture and in digital space that negatively impacted their actual experiences in moving through society, and also their health outcomes. That was one of the main impetuses for creating the term and then also for extending that into a book-length project. Well, and unfortunately, one of the things you mentioned in the introduction is that uh, with the COVID pandemic, so 1910 was was the origins of the, of the, well, not the origins of the term, but the place where you 
we're working on. But even now, a century later, you argue that misogynoir has made black women uniquely susceptible to unfair, inadequate, and um, you know, fatal treatment by the healthcare system. And we've wit- witnessed this for the whole the past two years. Absolutely. I think one example that springs to mind most vividly is the case of Dr. Susan Moore, who was a practicing physician herself, who uh, contracted COVID and went to the hospital to try and uh, get some relief from those symptoms and was treated as though she was a drug seeker by fellow physicians and was denied adequate care Uh, eventually decided to check herself out of the hospital and into another one uh, some two weeks later, but ultimately succumbed to her COVID symptoms. And, you know, if that is how a Black woman physician is treated when she is a patient, I mean, just imagine the treatment for Black women patients who don't have that privilege of being, being also a doctor. So it the way that misogynoir actually has material consequences on Black women's life is really a central part of, of my book project and what I want people to understand. And you you established that, you know, a really breadth, I mean, the, the scope of this, you're looking at media stereotypes and health inadequacies for, for up to like a century, more than a century in some cases in the introduction. So it sets it up really well. But the primary impetus for the content of the book, the content chapters, you argue is to create space and explanation and illustration of Black women's digital resistance through the creation of new content and digital practices. And you argue that the, the the variety, I, it's probably like two or three dozen examples that you explore throughout the book are forms of self-preservation and harm reduction that disrupts the onslaught of the problematic images that society perpetuates. So how do you see digital resistance by Black women, trans, non-binary folks, and d- misogynoir? Are they competing? Is one a corrective for the other? What's the basic layout of that for people? Oh, yes. Thank you for that. I one of the things I wanted to do is not make the book just a history of misogynoir, just a story that recounts all of the negative and horrible uh, representations that Black women have to negotiate. So I was really interested in celebrating the way that Black women transform their experiences with digital platforms that do uh, promulgate misogynoir that they are in a position to use those very same tools to combat and uh, transform the way they experience misogynoir in their lives by creating the things that they need and the things that are of value to them. So through hashtag campaigns or through YouTube web series or even through what people curate on Tumblr, Black women are creating what it is that they want and need. And in the process, I do look at some examples of what I would say are openings and possibility models for other ways of relating to um, the digital space and the digital platforms that we use. And I stopped just short of saying that uh, these, these things are, you know, automatically positive because like most things, the 
what we create is also limited by our radical imaginations. You know, there's only um, so much that we can envision given uh, the limits of the society in which we're in. So none of these projects or pieces are perfect, Mm. but I do think that they open up some possibility for something else and get us closer to uh, another another world, another reality, uh, giving us the opportunity to think beyond and outside of boxes and silos that keep us very limited in our imaginations of what a future can look like for for different groups of people. So, one thing that I appreciate about the book is, you know, it is very academic and scholarly in some ways, but. For me, it also has these Afrofuturist uh, leanings and threads that I think I'm trying to pull through in the conclusion, kind of get us to move past uh, what we might imagine as limitations in our in our world as it exists con- currently. Well, and I will just say, reading a lot of books <laughs> for this podcast, I found this to be probably one of the most accessible books. Uh, to be this smart and this successful, if, if it makes sense. It's not that saying a book is academic is an insult, but for the listeners, I think sometimes that can make them think it's not meant for a general readership, but there's nothing about this book I wouldn't hesitate to recommend to any general reader. So, Oh, thank you. I, I don't consider academic an insult, but it's certainly this book could be a, you know, grab off the Barnes and Noble shelf and read without much background. And you've made it incredibly easy to understand without, I think, undermining the complexity of the, of the issues that you're dealing with. Oh, thank you. And, yeah, and thank that's, you. Definitely, <laughs> that's definitely a, a, a belief and practice that uh, is informed by my deep dedication to disability justice as a practice. So thinking through what makes something accessible how do you uh, allow people entree into a conversation that perhaps they aren't familiar with, or if they are, uh, making sure that it isn't alienating, uh, even if you are using some terminology or jargon that is a bit unfamiliar. I really work to make the book accessible on, on multiple levels. Yeah. And of course, you can never speak for everyone's sense of accessibility, but just comparatively speaking to other books that deal with these kinds of subjects that I've read this year, I I just really thought this was an exceptional read. And part of it is the variety of case studies and the quantity of examples you offer as you move through some of the arguments in the book's chapters. So before we get into that, because I'd love to pick a couple of the highlights because we'll never have time. This book is so rich, we'd never have time to talk about it all. But I just want to mention in the introduction, you say that in writing the book, you struggle to come up with language that fully captured who is engaged with this transformation of misogynoir, and obviously also who is targeted by misogynoiristic <laughs> attitudes and behaviors. And you say that yes. uh, you challenge the reader as they read the book to think of Black women first when you see the word women, and to think of queer and trans women first when they read the term black women. And I thought that was an excellent, because you go through some options. I could have said this, I could have called it this, I could have used this label. Um, you do spell out the full like gender, you know, gender non-binary and gender non-conforming trans when you need to. But because again, you're trying to be accessible, you just 
keep with black women a lot of the time. And you just ask the reader, you know, maybe think about different identities when you're thinking about that word. So was that hard for you to to come up with that? Or do you feel like you you knew that that's how you wanted to handle this from the start of the book? Oh, great question. I I did really want to make it accessible in the most possible way, um, but also be attentive to the fact that um, it is Black women who bear the brunt of this, bear the brunt of misogynoir, even though they are not the only people who experience it. And then also to say that uh, it is, you know, gender queer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, gender variant folks who have been really instrumental in pushing back on some of these problematic representations. And I would say uh, this is something that we see in our movements just generally, that the people who are most marginalized often, you know, are the ones with the loudest voices challenging some of the ways that we are being represented and treated in society. So I wanted to highlight that work and also show the particular ways that these communities were advocating for themselves and for others uh, through the content that they were creating online and then the processes that result from that content creation. And to center those communities was really important because as I've seen, and as I also mentioned in the book, I have not seen Black women feminist work center queer and trans women uh, in this way before as being really integral to our struggles for liberation. And in my estimation and in the, you know, examples that I tried to provide, it's that work that I see doing this transformative practice and praxis in terms of the way that they are radically reimagining content and uh, informing new ways of relating to these platforms. Yeah, well, it was um, it was interesting to think, you know, being white, how I would have read the word women. I mean, you really, when you ask the reader, like, I want you to think of these people first when you see these words it really made me think oh I don't think <laughs> like I so it was it was helpful and it made and also then I spent the rest of the book trying to do what you asked and then what happens is in other spaces that activity carries over and now when I see the word you know calling all women for a meeting or whatever it, it changes my reference for that word so I've really I've read this book I think three times now just in the time that we've set up this interview and I've really um it's been really instructive in me thinking about my own prejudices and assumptions. So just thank you for taking the time to do that. And uh, it really, I think, helps kind of cultivate a different praxis as people move through the content of the book. Oh, well, one, thank you so much for sharing that with me. It's, it's you know, when you write something, you're always curious how it will be taken up and how people will understand uh, the what you're hoping people take away. So it's great to hear that it's changed your thinking. And it's definitely that practice myself that I had myself of seeing women hailed for a meeting or that language of women and femmes, and then realizing, I don't think 
you are using that or trying to hail the people who are in that terminology. You know, I think getting clear about who you mean and who is being affected by whatever issue it is that you want to address is is essential. And that comes from uh, the intention that I really try to bring to the creation of the term misogynoir. So definitely wanting to extend that too in terms of who I imagined responding to misogynoir and those who actually experience it. Yeah. And it transitions well into your first chapter, which you titled Misogynoir is a Drag, in which you discuss a sort of misogynoir in the digital space. And so this is more of the, this chapter, the chapters kind of move more toward, I guess, what you would call resistance. But in this first chapter, you are doing just a little bit to show this is what this looks like in digital spaces before you start to show how it's being resisted. And one of the um, one of the case studies that you look at is the viral video, Shit Black Girls Say. And do you want to say more about how that video exemplifies misogynoir and what you mean by it being a drag in the sense that it's like tiresome vexing and in the sense that people drag black women through these spaces? Yes. So this example is an interesting one because I have been a longtime follower of Francesca Ramsey uh, ever since she was first using uh, YouTube. So this is back in the days of live journal and blogger. Oh, live and- journal. I remember live journal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. So like you can follow someone and understand some things about people in these early iterations of themselves. And, you know, Francesca Ramsey had um, a, a viral hit with her, video shit white girls say but it was based on um this really this first viral video um shit girls say that was created by a comedian who wanted to basically poke fun at the way that uh white women act and so there was a response video created by billy sorrels a black man who then uh acts as he is a black woman. So what do black women say? So shit black girls say. And what ends up happening in this video is very much a lot of these negative stereotypes that uh, circulate broadly about black women. And a lot of that gets reinforced in what is supposed to be a comedic video. And surprisingly, I think to some people, Lena Waithe was one of the authors or writers of this particular sketch. And the stereotypes that get promoted don't really do a service to Black women. And part of what operationalizes the video is Billy Sorrell's donning drag Mm. to perform this Black woman character named Peaches. And Peaches exemplifies all of these uh, you know, stereotypes that we have about Black women. And in the process, uh, it does a lot of damage to ideas about Black women and has a particularly negative impact on understandings of Black trans women who get pulled into these really misogynoiristic portrayals because 
people then assume that trans women are just men in dresses, like these drag characters from these videos. And part of my uh, argument is to say that, you know, misogynoir is a drag, both in terms of just being an awful experience, but then also it's the use of drag as a form of misogynoir that targets uh, Black women and plays on these tropes of Black women as being more masculine than other people, etc. So I really found uh, that initial video and uh, an unfortunately perfect example of misogynoir being enacted and Francesca Ramsey's critique of it really got me thinking about how we can start to think through misogynoir as a performance that helps perpetuate and sets up uh, these negative material consequences in the lives of Black women, particularly Black trans women. Mm. Yeah, it's um, you do you you talk about the beard. I don't know why, but I found this really helpful because I had not seen this video, and of course I went and watched it. And you make this comment that there's something uniquely problematic about him doing the impersonation of Peaches while keeping the facial hair because it does reinforce. And we're seeing this coming out in all the anti trans legislation, right? That these are just men dressed up as women to manipulate and be lecherous and do all of these things that horrible men do. Yeah. And that there's something about the the performance and the way it marks itself that really does put into circulation all of these, even though it's just quote unquote kidding. It really is exactly very indistinguishable from what people actually believe about trans women. Absolutely. And this goes to another a source that I cite in the text uh, in this chapter and also in uh, the chapter about the hashtag girls like us created by Janet Mock is from the film Disclosure. Mm. And in that film, uh, Jen Richards talks about how trans women um, are not done any favors when men play trans characters on film and television. That part of of being awarded uh, an Oscar or some other, uh, you know, film and television award depends on this idea that they have transcended, that they have done the impossible mm. as this hetero men playing uh, this trans woman. But what that does is it reinforces this idea that trans women are men in dresses. Right. It does not um, actually give real credence to the lives of trans women. It reinforces this idea that it is just costume. And so I find it really important to make that distinction in the text that when people create what they need for themselves, then it completely challenges and gets away from this uh, false understanding of who um, trans women are. And so the hashtag girls like us creates an opportunity for trans women, uh, largely trans women of color to connect with one another in a semi-public space in that 
you know, anyone can view the tweets that are tagged with the hashtag if somebody has an open Twitter account. But uh, the community that gets created around that hashtag then provides an opportunity for trans women to be themselves and to celebrate each other in uh, their own authenticity outside of uh, dominant stereotypes, stereotypes and tropes that exist in popular media. And this chapter opens with a really interesting meditation you do on the word realness. Uh, so Janet Mock uh, uses the word realness, and then you kind of meditate on that a bit and its relationship to this this argument that you're making as you move into chapter two. And then you say that the ephemeral nature of social media serves the real-time concerns of the present, of realness in the present, in a way books do not. So that's kind of the opener of the chapter. Can you say a little more? Because I really enjoyed this part, and I thought it set up the argument well. And then maybe tell us more about what Girls Like Us has done, especially thinking about health disparities. Yeah. I mean, there's something really magical about the internet and things that only exist for a moment or in a particular context. Uh, And that's one of the reasons uh, that I talk about in the beginning of the book that I decided not to have images or recreations of a lot of the media that I discuss because you lose that sense of ephemerality and it also doesn't exist in the same way when it's trying when you're trying to translate that into a book format. Uh, the energy of it is just different. You know, a still from a already potentially grainy <laughs> web series mm. doesn't really translate uh, to the book page in black and white. So I really wanted to if people are interested, I have all of the evidence in the notes that you can go and look things up. And I'm glad that you that you were able to do that. So people can find those things out in the wild of the mm-hmm. internet, uh, as opposed to trying to negotiate a recreation that doesn't actually give you the spirit or the actual feeling or flavor that it's possible when something is in its natural digital habitat. Mm. So I wanted to create an opportunity for the actual work that I thought uh, these ephemeral pieces were doing to shine through in the ways that I described them in the text. And uh, girls, hashtag girls like us created by Janet Mock is one of the examples that I draw on because I found uh, her use of the hashtag and then its subsequent proliferation to be a welcome challenge to a world that would render trans women invisible and also became a way for trans women to define themselves for themselves on their own terms, Uh, not in relationship to cis women, not in relationship to um, some other uh, group that might be at the center, but, you know, for themselves, by themselves. And as a result, uh, the real diversity of that hashtag and the kinds of tweets that were marked with it give you such a different 
window into uh, the lives of trans women. And something I'll add here is my own uh, practice around connecting to the people that I call collaborators when I am doing research and work is that I did not want to, as a non-trans woman, uh, just go into this project assuming that uh, writing about the hashtag and writing about how it was used would be helpful. Mm -hmm. So before even starting the book project and before writing a journal article, I reached out to Janet Mock about my use of the hashtag and interest in understanding it and we talked together about what might be useful in learning about how the hashtag was used and is used currently. And that's, again, something else that I want to highlight, just that when you are working with populations that have historically been marginalized, it becomes really important to attend to the practice of your writing and how you show up in your work and research scholarship so that you aren't uh, perpetuating some of the same violences that um, make these communities vulnerable in the past. Oh, that's so cool. Janet Mock got back to you. How awesome. Can you ask again? I, oh, I, I, I just was, missed. Oh, it's okay. Yeah. I was just saying how great that Janet Mock took the time to get back to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I had something similar happen a long time ago when I wrote about the Cordoba House, which is, um, it, they call it the Ground Zero, it became called the Ground Zero Mosque pejoratively, but it was the big, it was the organization that wanted to build um, the big mosque and Islamic community center at uh, in lower Manhattan in 2010. And I had written to them a couple of right. times in 2010 to ask if, if what I, if the argument was okay, if, if, you know, they felt like they were being represented and I never heard back. And then years later, I think like two years ago, suddenly I get this email. Sorry, we never saw this. <laughs> this sounds great. Send us the piece. So it is interesting how, how the research kind of comes and goes with the, with the popular consciousness, but uh, that's great. So you had some embedded, some embedded research happening at the same time that the book was being written. That's fabulous. Yes. And I'll add that I don't know that it would have been possible uh, in this current moment. Something that was true of my previous book, my co-authored book, Hashtag Activism, was that we realized at the end of writing that book that we couldn't have written that book when uh, at that moment. Oh. like the, the conditions of the internet were such that this book couldn't be written again because of how terms of service had changed yes. with Twitter and also how uh, Twitter data was allowed to be used by researchers. It wasn't possible. And similarly, I feel like I was able to have this conversation with Janet Mock because we had been on Twitter in the very early days mm. when I feel like the Twitter was just, you know, the hinterland of the internet <laughs> and there was no one really there. And we, you know, struck up a, a friendship online that made that possible. But I don't know that she would have trusted me if I had been, you know, a capital R researcher or scholar mm, uh, reaching see. out at a later date. So it's, it's one of those um, real, I don't know, 
just acknowledgments of even the ephemeral nature of, of research, that something was possible at a particular moment that isn't possible, that I don't think would be possible now. Well, it also speaks to this term, uh, digital alchemy, that you start in the introduction, but really gets going in this chapter with Janet Mock. And and you essentially say that you're building toward an understanding of this concept of digital alchemy as a praxis designed to create better representations for those most marginalized through the implementation of networks of care beyond the boundaries of the digital from which it springs. And then you talk about defensive digital alchemy and generative digital alchemy. So uh, you, I think it kind of, you know, it's one of those things where there is an, there is an intim- there's a trade-off between the intimacy and the popularity of some of these movements or some of these terms, and they change the conditions of care and networking that can be done because a Tumblr space looks different than Twitter, looks different than a hashtag with X number of follows versus a hashtag that's gone viral, right? So can you say a little bit more about digital alchemy and how you see it as part of the uh, resistance to misogynoir enabled by digital spaces? And then maybe what some of the complexities are now that were not around when you wrote your other book? Yeah. So digital alchemy is actually a term that predates misogynoir in terms of my own evolution as a thinker. I was writing about uh, digital alchemy when I was looking at some of the blogs and also to go all the way back to LiveJournal, that Radical Women of Color, which was the language that we were using at that time to describe people who were involved in these conversations were using, uh, we were using the platforms available to us in ways that I don't think that the platform designers ever intended or envisioned. Mm. So I saw people using Blogger as a way to have conversations and then uh, start movements and, uh, you know, grow um, actions that, you know, was beyond the scope of what I think Blogger thought people were going to use it for. Just a place to, you know, put your journal or put your thoughts or even that move from blogger to WordPress and understanding a blog as a content management system that could help people uh, you create a website. So all of that was forming and taking shape as I started to think about digital alchemy and what people were doing were actually pushing the platforms into these new areas that uh, the platform designers hadn't hadn't thought about. And it was actually moving uh, movements and it was shaping how people were able to create what it is that they wanted and needed. Uh, And that experience, I started to call digital alchemy. Mm. It was taking the platforms that existed and then using them in this new way. And uh, then I started to think, through, uh, okay, so some of this feels a little defensive, and then other aspects of this feel generative. Mm. So in the text, I give an example of a defensive digital alchemy that happens with a hashtag that uh, is very clearly trying to target 
black women uh, ruin a black girl's Monday. And then some defensive digital alchemy against that hashtag is to just simply flip it and, you know, ruin a sad black man's Tuesday. Right. <laughs> so it, it becomes just a, a, a defensive strategy that, you know, counteracts what was initially sent out. Uh, but then there are other ways that I imagine things being more generative, which would be YouTube as this initially a site for videos and uh, categorizing clips that are, excuse me, already exist in the world, but then uh, being a repository or an archive, but then moving into YouTube being a site for content creators and producers of new material. And that is one of the ways that I see uh, Black women moving YouTube beyond what it's initially, what it initially thought of itself to be and thinking of it as its own platform akin to uh, a regular media network with people creating original content and uh, played, paid content on, on the platform. And that has, of course, then shifted what is possible in digital space. And I give the example of the web series Awkward Black Girl, really opening mm. the misadventures of Awkward Black Girl, opening up to YouTube a new audience that it didn't imagine before. And of course, that launching the career of Issa Rae and all of these other avenues and platforms that go beyond the digital into the mainstream media networks that that we know and love. And you and and you make you you title the chapter that deals with the web shows uh, web show world building mitigates misogynoir. And I really like this the idea of world building in this chapter. And I think too, you look at a couple of different series in this chapter, right? Sky's the Limit, Between Women, and 195 Lewis. And what I really appreciate about this chapter is how complex everything is. You're not saying that these shows have solved misogynoir. You very closely attend to, I guess, what you would call sort of the the navigations these things are emancipatory. These things are problematic. We're not sure about these other things. And it's an incredibly complex look. But what you kind of take away from this is that they're using the web shows as a space, not necessarily to build perfect black, trans, queer identities, but to build real, uh, to, to, to complicate what's often a one-dimensional figure, right, in the media. And in that sense, they're pushing back against the misogynoir. So do you want to maybe pick, and you do some lovely stuff with dialogue here. I know that the book is trying to kind of leave the ephemerality intact, but I, for one, really appreciated you picking out some of these exemplary dialogues and really closely analyzing the characters and um, how they how they like move through stereotypes and binaries. And it was really fascinating. Do, do you have any oh, specifics of, oh yeah, no, thank you. <laughs> do you have anything specific <laughs> in this chapter that you think really pops or that really gets at the heart of what you're trying to illustrate here? Yeah, I want to talk a bit about 195 Lewis because of the web series, it's the it's the on the latter end. So it it's the one that is most recently produced, also probably had the biggest budget, mm. 
also it's beautiful um if you're able to see it i think it's still available on the website 195 lewis and you can see uh the images there or see the episodes there but it is um remarkable in so many ways and you know it still has its problems Mm, (laughs) so mm -hmm. it's it's the one that actually deals with uh non-monogamy opens up a conversation about polyamory and is purposely trying to get into questions of jealousy and uh what is possible in our romantic lives that goes beyond a very hetero and homonormative assumption about what relationships can look like. And in doing so, it creates this wonderful, again, possibility model to use Laverne Cox's term of, you know, here's some place that we could go, but that place that we could go isn't perfect. Like there are still things that happen where the more masculine character is the one who seems to be benefiting from the polyamorous or non-monogamous situation, while it seems that the more feminine partner is uh, the one who's not exactly getting all of the benefits of of that kind of arrangement. Mm. And the show goes to some places that you rarely see in popular media. We're talking about a, a potential UTI or STI, uh, not stuff that you generally see in popular culture. And again, giving us some context for what's happening in people's actual lives, as opposed to what gets glossed over in uh, a media entertainment world that doesn't want to deal with the messiness of people's lives when it comes to sex other than to you know pit people against each other and to use that to create dramatic tension Uh, the dramatic tension here is also being moved by not just the romantic relationships but also uh, people's relationships to family members to uh, friends it definitely I think shifts our attention even as the show is dealing with polyamory, shifts our attention a bit away from centering romantic love as the end-all be-all by equally exploring some of these other relationship styles. So I really find that web series uh, such a a rich uh, area to get into some of these complexities that you've named. Well, and this is a theme that kind of runs throughout the book is just these, um, you really, it's not really a, a dominant theme, but it's certainly an implicit theme that you really are looking at alternate ways to think about relationships and networks and connecting uh, in in the Girls Like Us. You talk about how it's not really about identity and gender. It's more of like a kinship tie. It's more of an affective tie that's not necessarily specifically rooted in identity. And now here you're talking about not necessarily replacing romantic love, but certainly thinking about other kinds of networks of care and support that don't necessarily only center romantic love, because of course that very often feeds into transphobia and, you know, sexism. So 
it's it was interesting in each chapter to kind of see the way that these alternative relations emerged just naturally from Ooh. looking at all of the different case studies. And I'm so happy to hear you say that that was something that came through because again, as you're writing a text, you don't want to overwhelm the reader with, uh, and this, and this, and this, <laughs> pay attention to this. Uh-huh. But I'm glad that there is that feeling to the way that the um, narrative comes through, because definitely one of my interests in uh, the work is trying to trying to figure out how humans relate to each other and if we can do that in a way that's less harmful <laughs> to each other. And one way that I think we can do that is by reimagining what relationships look like and how we uh, express our desire, our political leanings and alignment with folks and ultimately seeing that it's not just about how someone identifies, but it's more about the behaviors, practices, processes, the kinds of relationships that they're willing to form. And this to me is one of the key insights of this work and even hashtag activism is there are infinite numbers of possibilities when it comes to uh, how we use the web. And of course, there are lots of negative ways that people use the internet, but I am so fascinated by all of the generative and potentially uh, wonderful world building ways Mm. of using digital spaces to create uh, a new way of, of relating to one another. And each chapter, I think, is trying to look at these different platforms and look at these different communities to see what sort of insights we can gain about relationships uh, through, through the digital. Yeah, I mean, it is really a world building book. And these are hard to write these days. And I I never know whether to like think an author or not think an author, because on the one hand, uh, the cult of positivity can be problematic. But on the other hand, it's really brave to write a book that's trying to be reclamatory and not only diagnostic of all the shitty. Certainly, there's a lot of shitty happening. I mean, the book certainly <laughs> pays a lot of attention to misogynoir and where it's happening. But you really took the time to carve out resistance practices and and networks of care. And in the chapter four about uh, where you interview the two black non-binary femme Tumblr users about what tum- how they've been able to leverage the platform, th- th- I found that really fascinating too, because Tumblr has become such a cesspool recently. So for you to be able to keep, <laughs> to keep carving out this resistance in all of these spaces, it's an optimistic book, which, you know, it, it's hard to find optimism in books. <laughs> In, in academic books these days. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for saying that. And that is that again is one of the things that made it possible to write because I as I say in the introduction, I did not want to write a book that was just the history of misogynoir and like all of the terrible ways that it manifests itself in this contemporary moment. What made it possible to write the book was holding on to these spaces of possibility that people are finding in digital spaces and that those um, actually create opportunities for uh, people to feel affirmed and create 
even more pockets of um, possibility in the um, IRL as well. Mm. So it, it becomes an opportunity to create and uh, transform what has been uh, so hurtful in the past. You can still find some places of respite and then also some places of generation. And that to me is, is one message that I hope people take away, take away from the book that they're, you know, I haven't, I, I have a very Octavia Butler relationship to, to humanity. Like I, I'm not sure if humans are going to make it, but I'm, but I want us to, (laughs) I, I feel like we have some potential to go, um, in some good places. And so that for me is what the book is about is searching out where, where we are creating a bit more of what we want and what we could be. That's so crazy. You just mentioned Octavia Butler, because I was just about to ask you if you had read Zakia Aman Jackson's Becoming Human. Um, I have, I have, I have a little, it's in the notes, um, but Becoming Human is definitely one of the things that I was thinking about uh, when I was trying to consider what language to use to describe those who are experiencing massage noir mm-hmm. and and grappling with it. Um, there was a a moment where I started to think about this wonderful. Oh, wonderful is maybe not the word, but um, <laughs> point this, poignant. This, Poignant. Yeah. There we go. This poignant uh, uh, quote attributed to Zora Neale Hurston. You know, women, black women, are the mules of the world, mm. and that really stuck with me. And I was trying to think about, well, if black women are the mules of the world. What are the non-binary, the agender, um, the otherwise gender variant of the world? Because I do feel like they too have this work that they're doing. And it was actually Zakia's work that had me thinking, huh, like there is a conversation to be had about this uh, comparison of Black women to animals mm-hmm. that fits into a very negative uh, and dehumanizing history but there's also a history of black women thinking through uh, black women's relationship to um, humanity in ways that actually push us to to go beyond the human and see the human not as the end all be all <laughs> of what is moral and righteous and something to aspire to. Mm. And I think that's important as well. So yeah, I'm very appreciative of, of that text for for mining um, so those rich stories of Black women addressing and and are grappling with, you know, do we want to be included in humanity if humanity continues to right. be so awful and cruel to, 
towards us. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Um, it's an, I mean, it was, so it hasn't come out yet, but so for listeners, there's a whole network happening. So you're listening right now to the interview with Dr. Moya Bailey. We are talking about a previous interview, a book called Becoming Human by Zakia Amon Jackson, which actually I also interviewed a couple months ago. So you can look in the show notes. I'll link that. But coming up is an interview with Tara Green and her book, Reimagining the Middle Passage. And at the end, we had a, Tara gave a beautiful meditation on forgiveness of of anti-black racism and oppression and and forgiveness is a daily practice that I think really ties into some of these threads about yeah do, exactly like if the human is going to insist on this formation is the point inclusion because it doesn't seem like something that can be additive right it seems like it's insisting on othering and do do we then want to open that up or do we want to create alternate networks of care? And of course, I'm using we here, but I'm not a woman of color. So this gets a little thorny, but <laughs> I really appreciate you unpacking all of that and all the work that um, all, all of the authors that we've mentioned have been doing and coming on the show to share their work with readers. So with that said, let's bring the focus back to you. Is there anything you're reading right now that you love or working on future directions or thoughts you want to leave your listeners with uh, before they head out to pick up a copy of the book, hopefully? Yes. Um, so the next project is looking at misogynoir in medicine. So mm. this book also has a through line where I'm thinking about health um, very broadly and capaciously, I would say, but now wanting to look more specifically at what's happening within the healthcare system. And uh, someone tweeted uh, saying that, you know, for black men, it's the prison industrial complex that is grating on them. Mm. And for black women, it is the medical industrial complex that oh. is grating on them. And I just thought that was really profound and um, accurate. And so I'm thinking through what happens uh, to black women in that space. And um, as Susan Moore's example gives, it, it doesn't really matter what side of the exam table you're on. Uh, the medical industrial complex is doing this um, particularly dehumanizing and uh, negative work on Black women and on, you know, gender marginal folks. And I am definitely trying to think through what, what, uh, the results of that will be um, for us going forward. What are the interventions that are possible within our healthcare settings to create a more equitable and, uh, I don't know, just a, a different experience for Black women in uh, medical spaces and how a Black feminist health science studies framework might be useful in creating a new way of imagining what medicine can look like. So on the horizon is that is that text. And then also thinking about a podcast myself, <gasps> uh, <Yay>! potentially, <laughs> potentially looking at um, how people are working to transform misogynoir in all of uh, the places that they are moving. So what does uh, the transformation of misogynoir look like in the academy, in medicine, uh, 
in healthcare, in housing, um, in prison abolition, mm. wherever people are located, how are we working to transform Sajinwar? And that's something I hope to to start uh, soon after the book is out and available for folks. Oh, wonderful. Oh, those sound like such amazing projects because we're not going to, when is the book due out? May? So pretty soon, really shortly, right? Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's also so exciting and terrifying. And I'm very impressed by your scope of genius. It's really impressive that you can cover so <laughs> cover so many areas. But I mean, obviously the work, the word alone, not to mention the work that it's come from has given people a really important vocabulary. And I can't thank you enough. I myself use it. My students, it's like one of their favorite things they learn all semester. It's not even mine. It's just yours and I give it to them. But they love <laughs> that word and care-wornness. The idea of black oh, women being yes. careworn, these are like my vocabulary gifts to them that they they write me years later and say, I still use that word. So, well, <laughs> I just want to thank you again. So everyone who's been listening, we were uh, chatting with Dr. Moya Bailey, author of Misogynoir Transformed, Black Women's Digital Resistance, available from NYU Press. And I would just like to remind everyone uh, that please support the university presses and authors like Dr. Bailey. These books that we publish as academics are really uh, projects of love, and they do not make a lot of money. So one thing you can do if you're not interested in getting a copy of the book is pick up a copy to donate to your local library, because you can only imagine, especially in um, certain parts of the country, like where they are currently doing voter suppression, where they are outlawing women's reproductive rights, how important it is to try and get a copy of this on the shelves wherever you're able to. And I checked out the price on the hardcover is $28, right? Yes. Whoa. Yeah. And that, I mean, I, like I said, I read a lot of books and $28 is an absolute steal for this book. So get it soon. And uh, Dr. Bailey, thank you again for being here. The book's fabulous. And I really look forward to your your future projects. Um, can people connect with you anywhere if they have questions or want to keep up with your work? Or should they email me and then I will get in touch with you? Oh, no. Um, if you're interested in connecting, please find me on Twitter at MoyaZB. Also on Instagram at Transform Noir, 1M. And uh, you can check me out at my website, uh, moyabailey.com. Thanks so much. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much for coming. And listeners, stay safe, uh, take good care of each other, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. 